Back when I was a kid, before we had cable, every now and then, the networks would have a quote-unquote very special programming. If you're over 40, you know what I mean. V for Victory, the 10-part series, or the network television premiere of Superman the movie. This podcast usually drops Tuesday mornings, but with the fires burning throughout Australia and resulting in all levels of catastrophe and heartache, and with too many Americans seemingly more interested in wildcard playoffs and fucking Kardashian tweets, Sorry, but you know it's true. I thought it was appropriate to have a very special episode or something like that. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sing and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every week. Today's episode features Nick Bonihady, the Sydney Morning Herald staff writer and part of the newspaper's exceptional coverage team of the current fire disaster overtaking Australia. And I wanted to talk all about it, what it's like to live through hell, to cover hell, to explain hell. This is episode number 136. Let's sling some yang. All right, Nick, so um, we just spoke for a couple of seconds, and you said, quote-unquote, I'm walking around a very hot Sydney. Um, how hot is it right now? What is it, what, is it, what is it like to be in Sydney, Australia right now? Uh, right now, I'm in central Sydney where the temperature, I'd guess, is a little bit over 40 degrees. Uh, but if you were further west, you'd be looking at closer to 50 degrees and uh, the suburbs that abut the Blue Mountains, which is a mountain range that comes almost to the border of the city. And those are record-breaking temperatures for those areas at this time of the year. Um, it's just scorchingly hot out there, heat really radiating off people. And that's not half as bad as people have had it over the last couple of days in other areas of the country. Like my family comes from Canberra, that's the capital, and yeah, it's had the worst air quality in the world for uh, several days over the last couple of weeks. So worse than Delhi or Beijing or cities that you might think of as having bad air quality, and that's because it's sandwiched between two horror bushfires. I had to look this up. I don't want to sound smarter than I am. That's a hundred for, you know, we're here in America. That's 122 degrees Fahrenheit, which is... Yeah, I'd have no idea what it was Fahrenheit. Yeah, which is <laughs> insane. So I've been, um, you know, I've been reading your stuff and uh, your coworkers' uh, work at the Sydney Morning Herald to kind of stay uh, informed. I guess a big, broad, huge question. What has this been like sort of to cover and... What has your sort of role been in the coverage? I guess I'll start with the second question first. Um, I work for the, the Sydney Morning Herald, which for American listeners, which I suppose is most of the podcast, is one of the biggest papers, depending how you measure it, perhaps the biggest paper in Australia. And we have a sister paper called The Age down in Melbourne. And both Victoria and New South Wales, the states those cities are part of, have been hit by incredibly large, unprecedentedly large bushfires. They haven't been the most deadly in Australia's history, but they have resulted in some mass evacuations. So uh, over the last couple of days, just in New South Wales alone, the government has recommended that people get out of an area that's about the size of Belgium. Um, and again, we're going to run into metric imperial issues here, but it's, a, it's <laughs> more than 30,000 square kilometers, which is just a vast amount of land. Um, and then in Victoria, this a somewhat similar amount of land that people are told to be to get out of, um, because these fires, fires are quite normal 
in Australia over summer. But what's not normal is just a complete lack of rain that means that these fires just burn and burn and burn and don't go out. And authorities have said quite plainly with some of these fires that they can't put them out, that they're just beyond their capacity. And that has meant that they've had to prioritise things like saving lives and acknowledge that homes and businesses, farms, livestock will go. So that's been really difficult for those communities. And in terms of reporting on it, it's been fairly relentless. Um, I haven't been out in the field, but a lot of my colleagues have been day after day and week after week on the road in these uh, rural communities. Um, and you can just see that it, it takes both a kind of physical toll on them and then also there's a lot of empathy for the people who are losing, losing their homes. And my family's been down on the south coast where things were burning. They've had to evacuate like a lot of others and they got out just fine. But that's a kind of nerve-wracking experience, even if I'm in a newsroom that has much more information to hand than almost anywhere else I could be. Um, and what I do, I'm a fairly junior journalist, but I've been running our live blog today. So that's updates very, very frequently every couple of minutes for people who are affected. And then also writing the kind of wraps at the end of the day to summarize that day's destruction or preparations or aftermath. Does it feel apocalyptic or is that an exaggeration? I think if I was down there, it would feel apocalyptic, yeah. And when the smoke haze comes in, it feels extremely Blade Runner, and it looks it. like the sky is red, and in the footage that you see from the coast, it'll go black. You just It will be 3 p.m. in the afternoon. It'll be a little bit like that in Malakuta, which is a Victorian town that the army has had to evacuate by ship because the roads are completely cut and bushfires are bearing down on that area again. Uh, it's about 4 p.m., 5 p.m. now in uh, Australian time, and I've seen footage of that town without any sun because the smoke is so thick that it might as well be midnight. So there, yeah, ap apocalyptic is, is completely right. It's crazy. I saw um, on your site, I saw some video of uh, Scott Morrison, who's your prime minister. Mm. Uh, I think this might have been how I found out about you, actually, being berated uh, when he went to visit a town. Um mm. And I saw I saw a piece that you posted earlier today. Uh, emergency services minister won't resign after "quote unquote" inexcusable holiday, which mm -hmm. is all these miles away. Just made me want to punch a screen that you have leaders who are treating this as if it's nothing, or or just you know very cavalier about it. Or in Scott Morrison, someone who's denied that climate change is even a thing. Mm -hmm. Am I overseeing that? And how palpable is the anger toward leaders, or is, is that not a thing yet? So uh, each of those cases is, is, is a bit different. So Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister, uh, went on a family holiday to Hawaii a couple of weeks ago, which he later admitted was quite ill-advised in terms of its timing um, yeah. and attracted a lot of ire. And he's returned home now. Um, and has spent quite a lot of time in operation centers and on the front line. And Morrison is obviously no climate activist, but he's also not someone who denies climate change outright. He believes in climate change and, and will say as much. And he also acknowledges that climate change can contribute to kind of drying conditions that mean that our bushfire seasons are longer and hotter uh, in a general sense. Um, he doesn't say that it contributes to a specific bushfire season because that causation is too hard to establish. So he takes, I suppose, a fairly centre-right position 
in, in Australian circles on that issue. Um, and he's actually now today in the wake of that reception that he got at that little town called Cabago, which is a tiny, tiny town that lost two people the other day on the New Year's Eve fires. He said in the wake of that um, that his government is really changing its approach. So Australia has a very strong or, or has a system of, of federalism, probably not as strong as the United States, but it does mean the bushfires are a state responsibility rather than a federal government responsibility. And so that's what he's previously stuck to. But today he has called in the army in a big way. So Australia's army reserves have been called up. Uh, that's going to put a few thousand people on the front lines, not necessarily fighting the fires, but doing logistics and search and rescue and caring for evacuees. And he's called up more firefighting equipment, um, more helicopters, more planes. So there's actually been quite a drastic escalation from the Commonwealth. Um, but that doesn't mean that that anger has gone away everywhere. And a lot of communities are annoyed that the coalition government that's in power, uh, of which Morrison is the leader, isn't doing as they see it and enough on climate change. Um, and then the other lady you mentioned, the one whose conduct is quote unquote inexcusable, that's our emergency services minister. He's at a state level. He has only just got back yesterday from that's a trip to Europe, um, which is quite remarkable. Um, now he says that that's a trip that he's long postponed, um, that he's had deaths in the family. Uh, and then he, you know, he's been working incredibly hard on other disasters. Um, and to his credit, he has eventually come back. But as he admitted, um, when you are the emergency services minister and you play a really hands-on role in coordinating disaster responses, it's pretty extraordinary that, that you could just be not in the country. You wrote the story, came out uh, this morning. Mm. Uh, David Elliott, the embattled uh, emergency service minister who drew furious criticism for his decision to take European holiday amid a horror fire season, has declared he will not resign. Uh, I came right. back to step up, not to step down. So. Um, I'm very into sort of the origins of stories. Like, how did you end up writing that? Did you try reaching out to him? How did that even uh, develop itself as a story? Yeah, so I suppose that's a pretty classic breaking news story in that this morning, early, I think just after 7 a.m., maybe around 8 a.m., uh, there was a briefing at the headquarters of some of our disaster response agencies in Sydney. And uh, Mr. Elliott was there. He was speaking with the Premier. He wasn't taking many questions. He was standing in the background. Premier and fire service leaders were doing most of the talking. And uh, when Mr. Elliott was asked to speak, he, I think, pretty clearly had a prepared line, which was that line about wanting to step up and not step down. Um, and so one of the interesting things about how these fires develop is that for most of the day, it can be quite calm. And, and this morning, things were in a kind of a phase of people really bracing for the fires to come. So our rolling coverage was going, but it wasn't at the pace that it was later in the day. We've had quite a lot of emergency warnings. There are properties that <coughs> are almost certainly being lost right now as I talk to you. Um, but at that time in the morning, I had the time to turn around a second story. And this was it, this, this story of the minister digging in and refusing to go. Um, and we had reporters out there feeding me the content for that story. I was just wondering, what does it feel? I've never experienced it. I've, I've been in um, frigid, frigid, frigid cold. I've never been in mm. heat like you're in right now. What does it feel like? You, you can get used to it. Um, but you end up just feeling quite lethargic. 
you really just want to like you, you see that I'm sure like the classic Australian in- image of a a kangaroo just lying down in the shade, seemingly without a care in the world. It's just because they're incredibly hot, and that I think is what pretty much everyone wants to do right now is to be inside in air conditioning in the cool, which is not what I'm doing. I'm walking around Sydney. Why are you walking right now? I'm walking uh, because I've, I've clocked off for the day. So I was on a very early morning shift. These fires the other day when they started up, they started far earlier than people imagined. So there were already people losing homes in the early hours of the morning, 4 a.m., 3 a.m. And that is one of the other things that's unprecedented about this fire season is because it's so hot and the bush is so dry, the fires are spreading even at night, long distances, which firefighters really haven't had to grapple with to the same extent before, especially across such large swathes of the country. Because it's not just Victoria and New South Wales, there's fires in South Australia on a place called Kangaroo Island, which is a popular tourist destination. There's fires down in Tasmania, there's fires over in Western Australia. There were big fires in Queensland, there's still fires up there, they're just not quite as severe. Um, so I'm, I'm walking around now because I'm done for the day, which is good. Um, but, uh, that, that's because I started very early this morning. I live, so I live in Southern California and we have a lot mm. of r- very bad fires here. And yeah. I feel like there is a tendency here. So I moved here from New York and I was not used to it at first. And I've gotten used to where people are very, um, they're sort of just numb to fire. Like fires out, oh, it's yeah. another fire, it's another fire. Does it at all feel that way or does this all feel different? Is it a different level where people are not numb to this? There's a huge debate over how we should feel about these fires. There are people who say Australia has always had fires. A lot of our native species are adapted to fires. So we have trees that once a fire happens, they use the good soil that they generate through the ash to grow very quickly. Um, We have animals that make all sorts of accommodations to survive those fires. So in some sense, fires, even big and bad fires, are normal. Um, The Australian Indigenous people have used fire stick farming for thousands of years. So that's very normal. But the debate is around whether these fires are normal. And there's a bunch of factors that suggest that they're not. So one of those is that we have a pretty normal fire season. And this has just gone months out, months and weeks outside the normal bounds of that fire season. And that means that if you're a firefighter, and a lot of our firefighters are volunteers, some are professionals, but a lot of volunteers, and you have to uh, make a, you know, earn a crust, earn a living, you have had to take far more time off work than you normally would to fight these fires in some cases. And that's really stretched people. So the government has had to step in and make additional payments to those people. Another factor that suggests that it's not normal is that the country is so, so dry. And that has meant that terrain up in the tropics, wet tropics towards Queensland and northern New South Wales that normally never burns has burnt. Territory that probably hasn't burned in hundreds of thousands of years. And another factor is that managing fires means backburning, getting rid of um, the dry tinder mater- tinder-like material in the months where it's cooler and you can safely light a fire to provide containment lines for when it's hotter. But as a result of the fact that the fire season is longer and it's hotter all year round, there's been much less time for our firefighters to put those containment lines and burn off that fuel 
So that's another factor that suggests that these fires are, are not normal, that the conditions that are creating them have been exacerbated by climate change. And I think that's probably the prevailing view, but there's, there's real debates. Um, climate change in Australia is a really vexed topic. It's claimed a number of prime ministerships in recent years. It also is playing out now in terms of debate about land clearing. There are people who say that the reason we haven't had sufficient land clearing is that environmental groups don't want to see that land clearing happen. And there are probably some environmental groups which that is true, but others deny that absolutely um, and, and blame it on the conditions that climate change has created. I mean, here you are, you're melting to death. There's fire everywhere. Don't you just kind of wonder sometimes if we will ever get it or if we're just, we're just so dumb of a species that we will never figure this out. And no matter what hits us in the face, we'll always, we'll always find a reason not to deal with it. <laughs> I, I have some optimism. Um, Australia previously, after what was called the Millennium Drought, a really long-lasting drought that began around the turn of, turn of the millennium, as the name would obviously suggest, uh, took more serious action on climate change. We've previously had prime ministers who have taken ac uh, action on climate change, including various forms of taxes or prices on carbon. Um, and Scott Morrison, the prime minister, says that we will beat our Kyoto and beat our Paris targets. Now, there's critics who say that that's done through a kind of accounting fiddle, but at least it's, it is, there is recognition that this is a really serious issue. So I think there's, there's some room for hope, um, that the public will, will, uh, gain awareness around this. And I think that that's made, um, much more obvious when people can see in a really tangible way what's occurring as a result. You got to the Sydney Morning Herald in 2018. Uh, before that, you worked for the law, you wrote for the Law Press of Australia. Your newspaper has been doing insanely great work in its fire coverage. I just think I, I've been blown away from the beginning by how good it's been. Here in America, I'm sure like there, there's a very strong decline in newspaper readership, uh, circulations, mm. et cetera. And I wonder, yeah. um, if you can, if you can gauge sort of in Australia, what the importance of newspapers are or how, how much has it declined and um, are people paying attention to what you're writing? I think that the, decli the decline has been really substantial in Australia, just like it has been over all over the Western world and beyond in terms of newspaper circulation. So, uh, and, and that's not just newspapers, but that's all sort of traditional media outlets. They've taken the battering and it's the same causes as playing out in the United States. It's about access to advertising. It's about the belief that News should be free that aggregators like Facebook have engendered in consumers. It's those same kind of factors that have really hurt the media here. Um, and that's particularly been the case in rural and regional areas, the areas that all of these fires are hitting where there used to be papers that were kind of mighty institutions in their towns that really held local councils that have a lot of power and a lot of money to account and now still try and do that and have great journalists working there. I don't want to take away from their work at all, but are just much smaller. Um, and so the importance is the same here as it is anywhere in the world. Um, the Herald has had real success, um, probably in a similar way, but on a much smaller scale, befitting the smaller population, the United the publications like the New York Times in terms of subscriber growth. That's the, the strategy is to have a really premium, smart um, offering that, that tries to break new and exclusive stories for our readers. And that's had some success. We've seen real subscriber growth, um, which has been 
really good to see, uh, not just in terms of my job security, but I think in terms of the importance of informing the public much more importantly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, there's, there's been kind of green shoots here, which has been been really good after um, such a long period of of decline across across the industry generally. In our in our uh, direct messaging on Twitter, you actually you gave yeah. me an education on something I had no idea about. You said I was asking you for different stories you've written unrelated to mm. the fire that have had meaning to you, and you wrote. Um, you said Australia has had, has much more restrictive defamation laws here. There's no legally enshrined right to free speech, which is deep damaging consequences for journalists and writers. And you um, you wrote a piece that was just freaking, first of all, great. And second, you know, really eye-opening. Uh, the headline was a chilling effect. Media companies forced to keep stories off Facebook. And um, yeah, your lead was your lead was major media outlets are keeping important stories off Facebook after a contentious court decision earlier this year made them liable for social media users' comments on their posts, which is insane. And it does is. it because you are in a different governmental system than we are? Does it not seem as insane? Do most people think, "Oh, well, that's that makes sense"? Or do people, when people read your work, do they think, "Wow, that that is insane"? So I think for the average person, the word defamation holds almost no meaning. Like it's it's a legal concept, uh, and People don't think about it even slightly, but that is until people get into one of these defamation cases. So we have had cases where people have got really large amounts of money out of other people over Facebook comments they posted. You know, someone says, you're a bad neighbor or you're a busybody, you're a bully, random throwaway comments that normally people wouldn't bat an eyelid about, but when you take them to a, def- to a court, and you have a barrister that's extremely well paid, very articulate, can argue the case really well, and they say, this says that my client is a bad person and their kids read it and they were ashamed that this person is their father. And the court turns around and makes awards that in some cases have run well in excess of 100,000 Australian dollars, 200,000 Australian dollars for defamation claims um, of a fairly, to you and I, trivial nature. Uh, then I think when people get that kind of concrete example in front of them or when it happens to them, then they start taking it really seriously. And the other thing is that these claims, even if you win, can be incredibly costly to defend and incredibly taxing. They take a lot of time. They're nerve-wracking. The lawyer's fees easily can set you so far behind on your mortgage that you might have to move out of your house. Those are the really like clear impacts that get people to engage with this kind of issue. Um, and the law is developing in ways that no one ever expected. So um, this... This decision that I wrote about was a decision of a court. It wasn't a decision that a legislator had, had put in a bill and passed through parliament. This was just a lawyer reasoning that if media companies were going to promote their stories on Facebook, then they ought to be liable for the comments and the reactions that it trigger. Never mind the fact that those comments and reactions could be completely unpredictable and have nothing whatsoever to do with the story that's published. That's, that's the reasoning that the judge adopted. Um, and so those kind of, of consequences can be really damaging to journalists because the media companies have to be, have to be kind of gun shy about what they promote. That means I think that there's likely more room for fake news to grow because those outlets don't care about the accuracy of their information. They don't necessarily have an identifiable publisher that you can even begin to sue. And it also, has consequences for specific kinds of journalism, like investigative journalism, because in Australia, you have to be incredibly careful 
about what you write. In the United States, I think the decision is called New York Times and Sullivan. If you mm -hmm. don't have actual malice, you can say what you want. You can have a reasonable basis for believing it's true. You've asked the questions, you've put it to the other side, you've talked to sources, you've walked the streets, blah, blah, blah. You can write it. You can make that claim. In Australia, that's not true. You have to be 100% right. If you get some small detail wrong in an otherwise uh, largely correct story, then you and your newspaper or your media outlet can be sued for a really substantial amount of money. And for sure, people need to be able to protect their reputations. Like, you cannot just go around claiming that someone is a pedophile if they're not. That must be awful for that person. I have a great deal of sympathy for anyone who ends up in that position. But equally, it is really chilling to journalism where you can have a story that is 90% correct or, in fact, you believe it's 100% correct, but a jury just doesn't buy it, even, even in spite of all the evidence you can muster. That has real consequences for our journalism. And there's actually been a campaign by media outlets across the political spectrum here. You know, really conservative tabloid outlets, very much more left-wing outlets like The Guardian out of the UK, which also has an outlet here, have joined forces to say that there needs to be reform in this area and a bunch of other ones. Um, and that seems to be getting a, uh, a positive reception from the government. There are defamation reforms that have been announced, but not yet enacted. Do you know, I was reading your story and I was fascinated by it. You mentioned that the case was initially brought by a former youth detainee named Dylan Voller. Yeah, yes. What happened? Do you know what was said about Dylan Voller that caused him to sue? Uh, I do know it. Um, I probably can't repeat it in full, but I can give you a bit of background to Mr. Voller because his, sure. his story is a really interesting one just in itself. So Voller was held in a detention facility for juvenile offenders in the Northern Territory. And the Northern Territory is an area of Australia, Kakadu, Uluru, really beautiful, beautiful places. Uh, and it has a very large Indigenous population, much larger as a percentage uh, of the population generally compared to the rest of the country. And in the Northern Territory, as in the rest of the country, those Indigenous people are massively overrepresented in the criminal justice system. And that's where Vola, who's Indigenous, ended up. And he was taken to a facility called Dondale. And at Dondale, he was kept in just vile conditions. So he was restrained in a chair, shackled down with a spit hood over his face. It, it was barbaric what was done to him. And that was exposed in really great investigative reporting. Um, now, people made some comments on Facebook stories about Mr. Vola that I think the gist of them was that he had done something to deserve the treatment that was meted out to him. And to be very clear, there's no suggestion whatsoever that that is true. That's just what mm -hmm. some uninformed, probably bigoted people decided to say online. And those were the comments that he ultimately sued over. And again, not true comments just comments that were made by third-party people with no association with the media publishers whatsoever. Wow. You know, there's this a movie There's this a movie that came out that I, I actually just saw with my wife two days ago called Blockbuster, and it's about Fox News yeah. here in America. Yeah, and, uh, and Rupert Murdoch. And obviously, Murdoch has a far-reaching media empire that begins in Australia. Is his, is his impact as profound? Is it as felt now as it was, I don't know, 10 years ago? Is it still... Yeah. Is he still the king yeah, of media yeah. in, in Australia? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Rupert Murdoch is 
tremendously successful here, uh, and, you know, and before him, his father and, and so on, long-standing dynasty. Um, but uh, his he has a, a major tabloid newspaper in every city, every capital city, and a lot of small regional ones as well. And they all have pretty strong circulation. In some places, they're the only game in town. There is no other competing print publication dedicated to that market. And they have the only uh, national broadsheet. In fact, I think it's the only broadsheet in the country called The Australian. It's a, it's a news corporation, Murdoch publication. Um, and there's also uh, Sky, which is a 24-hour news and opinion channel. And they have huge influence. Huge influence in Australia. Obviously not the only influence. Lots of other players here are, are influential, um, but they are a major part of the landscape and they certainly drive and shape public opinion. Now, some of that influence has been diluted by things like Facebook, the rise of social media, but it also serves to amplify and, and spread messages that originate with publications like these or publications on the left or whatever. So, yeah, um, Murdoch remains a... A big figure here. I, I should know that. How old are you, Nick? I'm 25. All right, so you're. I'm 47, so I got 22 years on you. Um, yeah. I'm fascinated by this. You're a 25 year old guy. You're clearly a, a, a sort of hard nosed journalist and a person who's passionate about journalism. Um, mm. It's funny because when I came up, when I came along, you know, I started in a town with two newspapers in the city, and there were a lot of cities in America with two newspapers, and you knew you could get a job in a newspaper, and it was a thriving business. And I am always fascinated for someone like you in your 20s. Why do it? Like, why join a business that seems to be in a very confused state right now? Yeah, I had no intention of doing journalism when I was studying. I particularly had no intention. I thought that I would do law or I would become one of these types who does management consulting and I would have a business. That's that's kind of what I wanted to do. And it was really by chance that I got into journalism, uh, but also kind of in a classic way, which is that the university I went to, the University of Sydney, has a really good student newspaper and its direction fluctuates wildly year to year as different editorial teams gain control of it. But it is kind of a lively institution, no matter who's in control. And it's produced some some pretty big names, the biggest of which is probably Clive James um, from a UK or US perspective who died recently. Um, but I thought this would just be such a cool thing to get involved in. It was a newspaper that had done investigations into the sports union and some strange things that were going on there or there were these very old school colleges on campus that charge high fees and have beautiful sandstone uh, grounds and have done investigations into kind of hazing on on in those places. And I just thought this would be a cool thing to get involved in for its own sake. I had friends who were doing it. Why not have a crack at it? And I did that for a year and then completely pivoted and moved to Vancouver to work with a uh, a glasses company like spectacles just <laughs> okay off to the left field entirely i'd worked with them for a couple of years had a good time and it's a bit like a, a warby parker in the united states i don't oh, know if you're yeah. familiar with that company but of course sort of australian of equivalent of that and they'd expanded to canada and i went along and worked there and every night i would get home from work and i would write case reports on australian legal decisions for this law press of australia thing that you mentioned earlier which uh, is run by a, a very experienced 
uh, legal journalist here. And this seemed like a kind of, this is like a revealed preference. If I'm just going to, at the end of the hard day, rather than coming home and chilling out or going for a run or whatever, if what I want to do is write up case decisions, then that's a pretty clear indication, I thought. So I'd kind of stashed that one away. And then I went traveling uh, and I was with a friend in New York, actually, and I was staying in Harlem. And he said to me, the clerkship applications have closed for all but one firm. And this is for legal clerkships, which is the path into law in Australia. I'm not quite sure how it works in the United States. And I would planned to apply for those, but I clearly hadn't. And again, I thought, well, if I'd really wanted that, I would have known and I would have applied. And so whilst I was traveling, the Sydney Morning Herald that hadn't taken on new cadets in four years put out a cadetship, a call for cadets, and I applied and I was fortunate enough to get it. And at each stage in that process, which was quite a long, like four or five stage interview process, um, I had to really consider if this was something that I wanted and I did. And so I guess I keep doing it because I, I find the work so bloody fascinating all the time. Like there's so few other jobs where one day you're dealing with issues about foreign policy and the next day you're dealing with someone who is unfortunately drowned or bushfires or the intricacies of defamation law or higher education policy like that is just staggeringly it, it's it's overwhelming but it's really fascinating and i love it for that yeah uh and i really like yeah. getting to tell people's stories colleagues are good and like sure i'm earning a third of what i'm being behaved in the law or, or consulting or whatever but i've got a lot of friends in those fields and half of them are burning out and swapping to other careers anyway so you may as well i guess have your have your midlife crisis early and go do what you love for a bit <laughs> it's funny because um i've covered you know i used to be a crime reporter and you cover these horrible scenes and you right now you're you're living in this hell that is the fires of australia and mm. it's a weird business where something can be nightmares and euphoric at the same time you know yeah, it, it's really strange. Like the last few days have been like very professionally satisfying. You go in, you work really hard all day. The story looks good at the end of the day. It has the facts right. People read it and that's a good day in journalism. And it's a, it's a terrible day in other people's lives. And I don't think that that means that this has to be some kind of nightcrawler type situation where you end up scouting around for terrible things to happen. It, it's quite the opposite. It's that it's really fulfilling to let people vent their anger or share the stories of heroism, even if they come in dark moments in their lives. Like there was, there are people who um, have, have hauled others out of lakes on jet skis and saved them as they've you know, been trying to swim away from bushfires or, or people who have made incredibly generous donations to others. I had someone completely anonymously uh, get in touch with me and, and offer housing for other people who have been infected by the fires. Like those, those are really terrific acts of generosity and it's cool to be able to share them with people. And, and then hopefully at the end of the day, you get to go home and have a good night's sleep and don't just replay everything in your mind, thinking about what you could do better. Hopefully. Yeah. Well said. Before we continue with two writers singing Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman and I'm here with my friend, Mikey who's four and a half and super into the gear at 503 Sports. So Mikey, what's your favorite throwback jersey from 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise? Yeah, 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 yeah. So Mikey, do you like my Denver Gold t-shirt? 
Monster trucks. How about my Mike Rozier Mauler's jersey? No, I want a grown-up jersey. Oh, would you like a 503 Sports jersey? Seven bits, seven thousand. How about this Ken Griffey Jr. minor league jersey? He's a baby. Mikey, how often do you go to 503-sports.com to order stuff? Poop. Oh, what kind of poop? Angel poop. I don't know, man. I feel like there's some hostility here. <laughs> Let me ask you a final yeah. question real quick, because um, I'm always fascinated by this. You, uh, <laughs> looking at America right now, here we are in mm. 2020. Our president is insane. Like, there you are in Australia. Are, do most of your friends, your peers, look at America right now with bewilderment? Are there people who think, wow, they really know what they're doing? Is it, uh, what is the perception yeah. that you see? There's, especially in kind of politically engaged Australians, there's also a great deal of political engagement in the United States that is completely non-reciprocal because the United States is a much bigger and in world affairs objectively more important country in terms of its, its power and influence. But if you, if you talk to politically engaged Australians, quite a lot of them will have something to say about like how Bernie stacks up against Pete Buttigieg. I wow. can't quite pronounce his last name. Um, uh-huh. they'll, they'll be like quite deep takes that people will have or, or someone will, will have a view of, um, you know, why General Mattis left or whatever. That those, those things r- people really get into here. Um, and I think people watch the strategies that are employed on both sides of the politi- of politics in the United States with, with great interest. Um, there's wow. certainly a lot of people in Australia who, who hold Donald Trump in contempt, and there's probably a lot of people who, who hold the, his Democratic rivals in contempt um, yeah. or, or, or you know, choose, choose bits and pieces of each. Um, but Australian politics has long been really heavily influenced by the degree of closeness that an Australian leader can evidence with the United States. So um, Australia has not been subject to the same kind of tariffs as other countries have. Um, I don't know if you've come across that, but our ambassador over there, who's a former Australian treasurer until he's, he's coming home, but he's got a lot of kudos for working with Donald Trump, um, which, again, some, some see as being terrible and others really praise. So, uh, yeah, hard, really hard to get a pin on like a, a uniform opinion on, on what Trump is doing. And he's really a lodestar. Like there, there may well be more people who could name Donald Trump than various Australian domestic political leaders. If you talk to someone, and I, I took a big trip during our federal election, going to various communities and just chatting to people on public transport, trains and buses and what have you. And if people wanted to express dissatisfaction with the way that mainstream politics in Australia are going, then they might reference Australian politicians, but they might say, I love Donald Trump. Um, wow. And then some kind of like spin on make Australia great again, which doesn't quite land. Um, but he has influence I, here more than one might think. I don't want to make you too sad. And this actually breaks my heart. But I would say if you asked 100 Americans right now about what's going on in Australia, no, maybe know. 20 get maybe 20. No. Yeah. No, I, I, I briefly went to school in, in Washington, D.C. And mm-hmm. I had people ask me completely sincerely if I rode to school on a kangaroo. Um, uh, and and similarly things that are just completely impossible. So yeah, I, I get it. We're a long way away, and we're a very small country on the other side of the world. Um, and 
and out the back of my mother's place, there are kangaroos. So it's not wildly far from reality. Wait, Nick, I want you to confirm this now. Uh, can yeah. you confirm that you did not ride a kangaroo to school as a boy? Can you confirm Absolutely that? Absolutely cannot ride a kangaroo. It is wildly <laughs> impossible. And they would, they would get kangaroos have really strong hind legs. Like they hop because they can push off the body weight of a very large mammal into the air with these enormous hind legs. And if they get angry at you, they will rear up onto their tail, which is also very strong because it counterbalances their body weight. And they will kick at you with their very strong hind legs. So you don't want to stuff with a kangaroo. Like dogs that go after kangaroos come off second best. Don't try and ride them. Never try and ride them. So, <laughs> a public service announcement from Nick. I appreciate that. Um, Happy to help. Well, Nick, listen, you're uh, seriously you, your paper, you're doing just fantastic work, and you, uh, your Twitter feed has become my sort of go-to for everything going on in Australia. So I, uh, I appreciate you taking some time in the horrible heat to uh, to to talk with me. Seriously. Thank you. Thank you. It's uh, yeah, yeah. Nice to take some time out of the day and reflect a little bit on the ongoing chaos. I want to thank today's guest, Nick Boney Haiti, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow Nick on Twitter at Nick Boney Haiti and read his work in the Sydney Morning Herald. One can listen to Two Riders Singing Yang on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the Dazzling MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing. Pop it till it locks, decimate the shocks, hand knitted. <laughs>